Uh, scripture reading today comes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have food that you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Forgot my Bible. It's kind of important. All right. Here we go. Well, good morning again. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you're in person or on YouTube with us, we're glad you're joining us with, for worship this morning. Um, it's our hope that if you are virtual with us, that you would reach out and contact us. Uh, you can email us at info at northcrosschurch.com. You can email me at sid at northcrosschurch.com. Uh, but also it's our hope that you would come and join us in person um, when you're able. If you're new to North Cross here physically, we're really glad you're here with us. We hope you feel welcomed, and there is a table out there, and if you just happen to need a pen or a coffee mug or a brochure, they're out there for you, gift-wrapped and everything. Um, also, you can put your uh, info on a sign-up, and we'd love to email you. Um, we, we promise not to annoy you nor to sell your stuff to other people, which I can't say happens all the time when you sign up for something, so we won't do that for you, so please sign up if you're willing. And then finally, um, if you want to just get more involved in our community, it's a great time. Um, in a lot of ways, if you kind of, the Easter service is almost like a New Year service. And so Resurrection Life, go and join a life group um, and go try one out. Try more than one out, uh, and we'd love to have you jump into the community in that way. Well, as we transition to this sermon, I just want to kind of make a passing note that there has been like just this past, for the last several years, there's been this trend in our art, in our books, in our movies, in our TV show. And I'm not, this is nothing like revolutionary that I'm saying here. But the next installment in these different art forms tends to go backwards, right? Have you noticed this? We're always going backwards, making and releasing the prequel to build on and better understand the original book or movie or TV show we really loved. And that's happening more and more often instead of kind of moving forward and writing the next installment of the sequel. And this Sunday sermon is going to be a little bit like that, okay? It's a prequel of sorts from, to last week's Easter sermon. We will, by God's grace, resume studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in May. 
But in order to kind of build on and better understand what we discussed last Sunday in Matthew chapter 28 and the Great Commission, uh, what it means to be people and how to live with purpose in light of the resurrection, we're going to go backwards. We're going to kind of prequel it to the biblical account all the way at the beginning, when and where human beings were created. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, as we just read. And here in the book of Genesis, from the very beginning, God lays out the significance and the reality of our lives. And really the going and the baptizing, the teaching of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, that kind of way of Jesus that we're living and making, is just picking up where Genesis chapters 1 and 2 started. These first verses in the Bible answer our fundamental questions. Who am I? And what should I be doing on this planet? What should I be doing with my life? And they answer these, these verses answer that question, those questions, richly, with a rich vision of what it means to be fully and joyfully human. But before we get into the details of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, would you pray with me for the God's words to us this morning? Father, um, you know what people have felt like this last week. You know what people think about um, as they look ahead to this next week. Um, People in this room are thinking about graduating. People in this room are thinking about a job that they despise. People in this room are thinking about a job that they don't, doesn't even feel like a job and they'd probably do if they weren't paid to do it. Um, and sometimes they aren't paid to do it because they're, they're staying at home and working with their kids. And uh, the rewards and incentives of that can be hard to see. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us in what we're up to. That you would show us that you care. And would you help us to dare to open our hearts to your word. To think your thoughts after you. To take every thought captive to Christ. And would you help us energize, be energized by your gospel in our lives, in our hands, in our feet, in our minds, in our hearts? Would you help us to live in the light of your resurrection and the hope that it promises to every endeavor that we do here on earth? We ask this in your name, Jesus, and by your spirit. Amen. Well, in the middle of like a fairly busy season of his life. He's trying to balance work and relationships. And he's also got this passion project of writing the Lord of the Rings trilogy, for instance. In his free time, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote an autobiographical short story that I love, if you've known me for any amount of time. And it's called Leaf by Niggle. He's doing this to process all of his life, what's going on, how to balance, how to live in the demands and to be clear, just want to be clear, the short story is called Leaf by Niggle. That's N-I-G-G-L-E. Okay? In this short story, Tolkien writes about a character named Niggle who feels torn. He's caught between two very good things. Niggle, just like Tolkien, feels the tension of an artist trying to finish his masterpiece while also just trying to be a good citizen and has this literal next-door neighbor who's needy named Parrish, which is a great name, by the way, because Parrish 
is just an older word for a small community of neighbors, friends, and family. So he represents much more than himself. But back to the story. Nigel knows that he only has a certain amount of time on this earth left. And he has been, this painting on his mind continues to get increasingly larger and larger in scope. It begins as a leaf, becomes a whole tree, turns into a massive landscape. And the canvas goes from small to large, so large that he has to paint it using a ladder and he has to store it using a whole shed. But often, right in the middle of his most passionate, painstaking painting, his neighbor Parrish has a highly inconvenient but very pressing need, a sick visit, an errand, even some minor roof repair. And so Nigel lives his life secretly resenting Parrish's interruptions. Okay, does this, anyone re- relate to this, maybe? Just a little? And feeling ever more guilty that he resents Parrish's interruptions. Again, that sounds like real life to me. All along, fearing he will never get his painting finished to his own satisfaction. Again, sounds like real life. And here's the thing. Whether you would feel comfortable calling yourself a Christian or not this morning, we can all identify with what Nigel's feeling here, that kind of split motives, that this kind of pressure of a finite amount of time to do a lot of things. Can't we? You know, you're just, you're out out of the house, and you're, whether it's an office or uh, a strip mall, you're just trying to get one thing, one project checked off of your massive to-do list, right? So you can get back home on time, and then, of course, you get interrupted, right? You recognize someone, or they recognize you, and they choose to get vulnerable when you just ask your polite question, how are you doing? And they actually answer it, and you're like, what? You didn't answer with a question? <laughs> how are you? And in, in exquisite detail, they tell you exactly how life is going and what's going on in their life. And so at that moment, you start to twitch internally, right? You start to get caught. You start in this cross-pressure of two very good things. Is it working or listening? Is it doing a project or being with a person? And this scenario just taps into a bigger picture question about our calendars, about our budgets, and really our purpose here on earth. Why am I primarily doing this job again? Why am I put on this planet? What am I put here to do again? To learn, to work, to get a degree, to get a promotion, to make a difference, or to listen and be with people and serve and care about people relationally. Which one is it? And really, here's the interesting thing. We expect that Christianity is going to come down on one side, don't we? Some of us here expect that God wants the job done and wants the job done well, the right way. Others of us, maybe many others of us, suspect that God only really cares about, about us stopping and listening in those moments. But our passage this morning upsets these notions of how God works and what he cares about, doesn't it? Genesis chapters 1 and 2 deeply affirm the goodness of our work or our studies. And at the same time, they equally affirm, these, these chapters equally affirm the goodness of spending time with and for others. Both. Both the goodness of our work and the goodness of others. 
And so we see this in God's words to human beings and for human beings in creation. We see this in God's mission or calling for our lives in these chapters. And it's woven into our, how, how our lives were actually even made. In a sentence, because God created us in his image to be and to do like him, God created us in his image to be and to do like him, we're called to love each other in community and to love the world with our work. We're called to love each other in community and to love the world with our work. And so really the main burden of Genesis 1 and 2 is, is contrary to popular belief, not a scientific explanation of how the universe began. I'm not disappointing you thought I was going to answer that set of questions. They're important, but I'm not going there this morning. Rather, instead, I think our passage is, at, is, is burdened with focusing on the why question of being human. Not the how, but the why. Who are we? And what are we supposed to be up to? And in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see this, this kind of why question answered by highlighting three major relationships, actually four, and then one blessing. So first, and this is our outline, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we see God's relationship to people and then people's relationship to themselves, to ourselves. Okay, And these relationships help answer who are we. So God's relationship to people and our relationship to ourselves, who are we? Second, Genesis 1, 27, and Genesis 2, verse 18, we see Adam's relationship to Eve, this first ever person-to-person relationship. And it answers, what are we to do about other people? What are we to do about other people? And then third, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we see people's relationship with the world. And that relationship answers the question, what are we to do about our work. And then the final fourth point, Genesis 1, verse 31, Genesis 2, verse 25, we see God's over-the-top blessing on all of these relationships. And he answers the question in these verses, what does God think about people and our relationships? Those points one through four, and so we're going to look first at Genesis chapter one, verse 26, and the way relationships, that God relationship to us tells us who we are. Okay, let's look there at Genesis one, verse 26. It's a familiar verse, and it really just essentially says, God created humankind in his image. This was God's final creative act on the six, late in the sixth day of creation, that sixth and ultimate movement of God's creation. And God doesn't just create people like everything else that he's already created. God creates them, he creates us in his own image and likeness to reflect his eternal and holy God, his very personhood, Okay? And the burden of this text is to highlight that being made in God's image means something. Okay, so we we never really get past that point. You're made in his image. Everyone's like, hurrah. What does it mean? What does it mean? Two somethings, in fact. First, every single human being reflects God's worth. Every single human being reflects God's worth. This means that every person in this room and on the planet possesses a large and certain portion of God's dignity, of God's power, of God's glory. 
look, we take this for granted. We don't really act out of this very well in the 21st century in America, don't we? We take it for granted that, you know, all people are equal, okay? Whether it's political equality or legal equality or psychological equality or moral equality, but that idea came from somewhere. And that idea came from this book, and it was absolutely unique at the time that it was written. It was contrary to the ancient Middle East it was written in, especially around that time. So let me give you one later account of how the ancient, ancient Middle East accounted for what it meant to be human. This comes from an Assyrian king who speaks about God's image centuries after the book of Genesis was written. Here's what he's still saying. Here's what most people still thought. A free man is a shadow of God. The slave is a shadow of a free man, but the king, he alone is like unto the very image of God. <laughs> Do you get that? So that's crazy. So what Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 is saying is something very new that changed the world for the better. Every human being, no matter their freedom, no matter their family, no matter their income, their race, their abilities, their job, their gender, their sexuality, or even their present tense beliefs, all of us are equal and deserve respect, the rights and privileges that was once only for royalty. We're all kings. We're all royals, to quote a song. And these inalienable rights to life and certain human freedoms, they are given at birth, and they are not earned through our lives or through our own abilities or, or inabilities. And this is because we do not bear God's image. We do not have God's image as if we could lose it all of a sudden. Oh, 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 there it goes. We are God's image. <laughs> We're God's image. No matter what we do with God's image, no matter what's done to us, even in the name of God. And this leads to some life-changing applications, even for our relationship with ourself. For instance, my worth, my personal wholeness doesn't change based on what you think of me or of my job performance, really. I'm objectively made in God's image, no matter how you or I feel about what I do. Your worth works the same. It doesn't depend on how hard you work. Your worth does not depend on where you come from. Your worth does not depend on what you look like or how smart you are or how fun you are to be around. You are always still imaging God. You, so we are lovable. We are worth it based on nothing. Not one thing that we actually bring to the table. We are lovable and we are worth the effort because we exist, because we're alive in God's image. Do you see how believing this truth might actually change the way that you conduct your life in Lake Norman? It has huge implications. For instance, what if we didn't walk around and talk to people having to prove our worth all the time? Do you do this? I do this. One conversation at a time. I'm worth it. How much less anxious would we be? How much less resentful of others would we be if we believed that our worth came from God and not from others? 
Here's the second takeaway. Second meaning of bearing God's image is every person reflects God's social nature. Every person reflects God's social nature. We see this in verse 26. Look there with me again. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Look, do you notice the singular God is talking about himself in the plural? That should be kind of stunning for a second. And so in this verse, we glimpse into a true mystery, the Trinity. God is both a he and a we. God is one substance but three persons simultaneously. God is God, and he is the Father, and he's the Son, and he's the Holy Spirit. God is a community, and there exists in God's persons a community of perfect love, a communion. And so God is perfectly social being at his core, at an identity level, and real actual love, even before creation ever happens. What does that mean? Theologian Eugene Peterson has a great way of giving us a taste for this divine communion. He says it this way, God is an eternal community, a radically other-centered relationship where the father is just always saying, isn't my son something? And then the son is always saying, look at my father. And the spirit is always saying, look at my Jesus. Therefore, creation is not because God is lonely. He doesn't need to be loved by us and the squirrels. Okay? The book of John chapter 17 implies creation is from the overflow of God's triune love. A love that is always pointing outwards, but always inviting inwards in us into his eternal communion. And there Jesus is also pointing out that eternal life comes from believing in who he is and what he did here on earth. And eternal life is more than just not dying spiritually. It's more than fire insurance. It is being swept up into the life of a perfectly divine dance of love. You're square dancing spiritually, and you don't even know it. That's what's going on. And all this leads to a few practical takeaways. Look, if God is a social community and we are made in his perfectly loving image, this means we are social. We are community-oriented too, right? That means a lot of sense. And so by our very creative design, here's two things that we need to know about ourselves. We are dependent and we long for relationship. We're dependent and we long for relationship. You see, we're not meant to be self-sufficient islands and tower of ourselves. God loved us enough to build us all so that we need help, like Parrish in that short story, and also that we need to give help, like Niggle in that short story. Perhaps you're scared to death of being too needy. So you struggle like I do to ask for help or to receive anyone's help when they offer it, or to rely on anyone for anything substantial. You and the rest of America, and me and the rest of America. Verse 26 tells us, tells you and me, and America, some dependence is not just inevitable. We have to be dependent at some level. It's actually good for us. Am I allowed to say that? It's okay to be dependent. It's actually good for us. In the words of the theologian John Stott, we are all designed 
to be a burden to others. <laughs> We're designed to be a burden to others. We're born to have limits the rest of our lives. Adulting does not mean you don't have limits. It's the opposite. And so, look, I intentionally spent a lot of time on point one. I know that. We have four points. You're sweating bullets over there. Um, because understanding our relationship to God and to ourselves is so foundational to the next question. What are we to do? Who am I helps answer what are we to do. And what are we to do? We're to image God. To image God's plural nature and our plural community. That's the first thing. Image God's plural nature and our plural community with others. And we're also to image God, his creating in our creation, little c, in our relationship of work with this world. So we image God by community and by little c, creating, working with this world. But what does that look like? Welcome to Rapid Fire, main points two and three of our sermon this morning. Okay, main point two. I really love Genesis chapter one, verse 27, and especially chapter two, verse 18. There's so much honesty for what life feels like here, isn't there, for us? <laughs> chapter two, verse 18 tells us, at some level, all of us as human beings, all of us feel lonely. Look, I, I, you probably heard this, but it's worth repeating we have huge desires for completion, for a fuller connection, because we are made in the image of a trinity. We need companionship. We need someone to ease our loneliness. Even there in the Garden of Eden, even with God, even before sin and hurt and evil entered into the world, we needed it. In between walks with God in the cool of the day, Adam is lonely. He's not lonely for God. He's lonely for other people. But Genesis chapter 1 and 2 aren't just honest about how hard life can be. They honestly promise that God sees and he cares enough to do something about it. He wants to ease our loneliness. God in his goodness recognizes Adam's loneliness and does something about it. God moves towards Adam by completing Adam and completing us. God made a suitable or fit helper a partner, a spouse. God invented marriage right on that spot in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, right after. But please know that Genesis 1:26 and Genesis 2:18 are just not solely about marriage, okay? Sometimes we preach that and we don't talk about other relationships. They are about friends and they're about family and they're about church and they're about putt-putt golf and having group scorecards. They're about any time I invite someone one person to come alongside me or share something or bear something shared. And this means it's, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you spiritually or emotionally to want to have deep and abiding relationships, to feel missed in those relationships, to long to get married if you're not married, to long to have a better marriage if you're married, to, have, to want to be seen in your family, to want to be with your family. It also means, to quote Cornelius Plantinga, it's an awesome thing to consider that every time you act kindly toward an irritating person, you're imaging God. That's amazing. That is giving and serving other people, being served and being given to. These are expressions of what we're here to do. 
we image God. And we make, when we image God, we make ourselves and we make this world a little less lonely. Tolkien picks this point up in his story, Leaf by Niggle. There we see how Niggle desires the company of his neighbor Parrish and all of the interruptions that he brings, even in heaven. Isn't this amazing? This painting of a leaf turned, like towards the end of the story, I should say, uh, Niggle is put physically into the mental of his painting. So Niggle dies and he goes to heaven, and his heaven is to be in his physical painting. It's a really beautiful image by J.R. Tolkien. His painting of a leaf turned to a tree, turned to a landscape, has become this real life, tree and leaf real estate piece. And Niggle is asked to garden and landscape it in a way he could never paint it. And Niggle is now sinless, and he is completely selfless. And he looks around at his masterpiece turned into physical landscaping job, and suddenly he deeply desires Parrish's company. And he wants his help. And so it's so amazing. Niggle cries aloud, this place cannot, just, cannot be left just as my private park. I need advice and help. I ought to have gotten it sooner. And so like Niggle, you and I need people to interrupt our efficiency. Not just to give us a bigger perspective, which is important, but to make our work, our private parks, more public and better and more for others, too. And so, in Niggle's new heavens and new earth, this glorious future where our relationships are perfect, there we can already see the second way that we image God here and now, in our work. And look, there's a ton to say about this topic and not a lot of time to say it, but God gives us all that we can do in Genesis 1, 26 through 30, and then again in Genesis 2, 15. Certainly, we're called to fill the earth with people, with other people. We're called to have physical families, right? To have children. We're also called to have spiritual families, to mentor others and to be protégés of other people, spiritually. But we're also called to work. We're called to fill out our potential, the potential of what's already in this world for us. And that work is subduing. That word subduing is this tone of cooperation, not tyranny, that we usually take it as. It's, it's a cooperation with what is, and we read this a little bit in our call to worship in Ecclesiastes. It's a season for everything, a time for everything. So what subduing means, it's working with the grain of the way things are made. The way they naturally work. In seasons of growth and in seasons of rest. It's, working, it's not working against the grain, just because we can. And here's the thing. Yes, we work against some evils that are natural. We work against disease. We work against natural disasters. But we have to ask ourselves really good questions when it comes to things like technology or progress. Is everything we invent progress? Just because we can do something, does that mean we should do that? One simple application is that in the context, the word subduing looks like caring, looks like conservation, like gardening not haphazard pollution. It's not pumping and dumping in this context. And this is what the Hebrew word for working and keeping mean in Genesis chapter 2.15. They're getting at this, that working and keeping look like making things better for all the earth and for all the people. And not just disadvantaging the many for my own and my family's advantage. 
But how do you and I do this kind of God-ordained work? We go to school. We go to university, maybe. We lean into professional development to study the world better in our field, to learn how it's made, what's worked, what hasn't worked in history or nature. But in addition to cultivating curiosity, Genesis' cultural mandate makes us work our work an act of worship. And here's the thing. We see the value of whatever we do, no matter how boring it feels. <laughs> That's what it means. We see the value of whatever we do, no matter how boring it feels. That's what when work is worship looks like. Little w. God chooses to use changing diapers. Do you know that? He chooses to use filling expense reports. He chooses to use attending meetings to provide goods, food, shelter, and love for other people and for the world. And God is asking us to do this work, his work, our work, excellently and selflessly. I love the way that Martin Luther supposedly put it. God is interested in good craftsmanship. And the context of that quote is that making good Christian shoes means making durable, affordable, comfortable shoes. Not shoes with tiny Christian crosses on the tongues, nor shoes with, only, with very, very high profit margins. This, again, is where Tolkien and his short story come in. You see, throughout his life, Niggle and really Tolkien feel that his life's work, you know, whether it's painting for Niggle or The Lord of the Rings for Tolkien, this was, it felt wholly unsatisfactory and very, yet very lovely. And so Niggle's drawn to his work. He feels uncertain of its success and its usefulness in this world. And that isn't, isn't that how we all feel about our work, wherever we work? We're not quite sure. We feel that especially as the days get longer and hotter, don't we? <laughs> Yet, as I hinted at earlier, Tolkien shows us the excellence and needfulness of all our work. He hints at how God will fulfill and perfect our relationship to our work in a future heaven. Nichols' heaven is filled with his tree finished. His branches growing and bending in the wind as Nigel had so often felt and guessed and had so often yet failed to catch with his paintbrush. And Nigel, in the midst of that moment where his work is redeemed, he can only lift his arm up and say aloud, it's a gift. It's a gift. And it's a scene that can only remind us of God in chapter 1, verse 31. And so we transition at last So our fourth and final point, the shortest point this morning, God's blessing. God's blessing. So what does God think of all his work? What does he think of the people made in his image? What does he think of our relationships with him, with our relationships with each other, with ourselves, with the world? At that moment in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, here's what God thinks. Behold, it was very good. That's how he made it. You see, in the beginning, things and relationships were the way they were supposed to be. People were able to be naked. They're able to be vulnerable. They're able to be unashamed, fully and finally free. Naked and unashamed with God, naked and unashamed with ourselves, naked and unashamed with each other, naked and unashamed with this world. But that's not how it is now, is it? It's not. We know with our eyes and we know in our guts that that's not the case. And so, I mean, why, does, why do Niggle's relationships with Parrish and his painting need heaven to make it work? 
Why does Nigel need God's intimate and physical presence in heaven to feel fully complete and connected, even to himself, let alone his neighbor, let alone his work? It's because the Bible tells us there's a rest of the story. Humanity fell into sin. And so Jesus had to do a daring rescue of his people and the whole creation. And of course, promise, the promise that we see so beautifully in Tolkien's story, Nichols' relationship with Parrish and his painting and God himself and the restore, are restored to work aright and renewed to work once and for all and heaven come to earth. But here's the thing, guys. Tomorrow we go back to painting our imperfect canvases. <laughs> We open up the shed, we start painting, and we hear a knock at the door, and it's parish, needs another roof repair. <laughs> right? And we will go interrupted over and over again as we try to paint imperfectly by our needs and our needy neighbors' needs, friends and families and colleagues interrupting. This side of heaven, is, that's what's going to happen, but I want us not to forget to remember the great dignity the great desires that God has handcrafted us into us, into this world. And that Christ is risen. He's still risen. He's risen indeed. And so perhaps we can lift our eyes from our computer screen tomorrow. Perhaps we can lift our eyes from the laundry that needs to get folded. And we can say on a Monday, mid-afternoon, I praise you, God for it is all fearfully and wonderfully made. We are, all of us, fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Amen.